This podcast is brought to you by Vinzero. Vinzero pioneers solutions and services to the AEC and manufacturing industries to support net zero targets. Visit vinzero.com to learn more about how organisations design, build and solve through digitalisation. From Vinzero to you, welcome to our Think Future podcast series. Each week we'll share conversations with industry leaders from around the world to find out how they're thinking future. Subscribe to Vinzero Think Future for access to more episodes, interviews and profiles. Practicing globally, Adrian McGregor is a biourbanist, adjunct professor and author of the book Biourbanism Cities as Nature. He is the founder and chief design officer at McGregor Coxall, a firm of biourbanists that delivers prosperity by design. Propelled by research from its biourbanism lab, the firm provides data-led urban design, landscape architecture and environmental services from five studios across Australia and the UK. Nominated as one of Sydney's 100 most creative people, he master plans new cities and helps existing cities and places enhance prosperity by planning for climate resilience. He received the Prime Minister of Australia's Award for Urban Design and has helped McGregor Coxall receive more than 200 international design awards. He joins us today to share his passion for biourbanism. Welcome to the program, Adrian. Thanks so much. It's uh, great to be here. Adrian, can you tell us a little bit, first of all, about your passion for biourbanism? Yes, well, biourbanism is a, uh, a city model that I've been working on for probably the last 15 to 20 years. It is a, a model that I've created to help cities become resilient to the climate crisis. And it's a way uh, to rethink how we design cities, how we plan cities, and how we retain prosperity into the future. So how did you become interested in the concept of biourbanism? My interest in biourbanism began at university. The very first, one of the very first subjects I did in first year was called uh, human ecology. And it was a fascinating subject that uh, really integrated planetary science, design, and, and human beings, uh, homo sapiens. So it set forth actually uh, the concepts around global warming, ozone depletion, and many of the things that we are still talking about today. So I had this incredible opening, if you like, into uh, these concepts. And I think it's seeded uh, an interest that has developed over time as, as I've designed and, and become or engage in the design of cities and places. So yes, that's where it was, was seeded. And you established what is now known as the Biourbanism Lab in 2006, which is a world first. What was the inspiration behind this and how does that actually support your quest for biourbanism today? We live in an incredible world. AI, uh, data, digital tools are really available in a way that they never have been. So there's an incredible opportunity to use research um, to make uh, the invisible visible. And in planning and designing places and cities, this is a really powerful uh, set of tools because it allows you to understand the functions, operations, um, and, and almost the metabolisms uh, of cities in a more powerful way. So the lab really is a place where our research and, and our data science uh, is, is held and kind of developed. So we actually have five PhDs in the lab at the moment, and they're working globally, but 
uh, the the interesting thing is that we we are crossing over between academia and professional practice. So we're moving people who have um, an academic background into uh, projects to work with clients, and they're bringing that way of working, if you like, and that rigor to to our projects, and it's really enhancing the the kind of tools that, that we can offer to our clients. Um, and we're developing uh, new methodologies for understanding cities. So it's a very interesting and exciting group of people that we have who are collaborating in the, in the lab. So what sort of trends are you seeing that support bio-urbanism in cities around the world, given that it's a relatively new approach? And what do you think it's going to take to get some momentum globally with bio-urbanism? I think that the big shift uh, that is happening is around the concept of systems thinking. And really the bioorganism model, it works on the interrelationships between systems. We tend to and have tended in the past to design um, in silos. So if you look at the way nations and uh, national governments, federal governments, uh, state governments, they fund uh, their departments um, in silos. They all have a separate budget. And they do the work uh, that is um, relevant to their own budget, department, and silo. Unfortunately, what that uh, creates is a kind of counterintuitive um, outcome in terms of uh, holistic uh, environmental um, kind of thinking and in, in cities. So it means that we're not working uh, with those systems in an interrelated way. And... And really, that's what nature does. Ecology and ecosystems work together in a way that uh, is interrelated. And we have yet to understand that um, in our cities. Our cities do function uh, in uh, through these relationships, but we haven't yet been able to harness those relationships to create the outcomes that we need. And that's created, I think, the issues that we have now around global warming, greenhouse gas emissions, pollution, all of these things because uh, we are not thinking about the entire uh, city as a as a set of systems. So in your book, Cities as Nature, you dive into this a little more. How does ecosystem thinking translate into cities? The title of the book is Cities as Nature. And this really uh, is quite a radical prospect for most people because we think about ourselves uh, as humans, well, we're actually homo sapiens, so we're a species, we're a mammal, um, and we create our cities. And then we have uh, the wild places that we you know, learn about at school or university, which we treat as, as nature. The, the new thinking that's come out of ecological sciences and planetary sciences actually starts to combine those. And the concept or term anthro refers to the city being reclassified as a form of human-modified nature. So as homo sapiens, we, uh, we build, operate, um, and manage our cities. And those cities are in um, the troposphere. They exist in the biosphere. They're, so therefore, they must be part of nature. They're not on a different planet or a different space. So they exist inside our planetary boundaries. So I think the change of thinking that's required that, that is quite radical is that we understand our cities as nature. Then we'll better understand the natural resources, the natural capital that goes into them, you know, the flows of environment um, that are required to, to maintain them. Um, and of course, you know, if we think about, for example, the way a termite 
builds its home. They build, you know, they're skyscrapers. It's like a, you know, a tall building or a city. And and the termite and, and the city that it creates and its community lives in, we call it nature. But if we create a set of tall buildings um, in our city and we populate and have it those, that's not nature. So you can see that um, there's a mismatch uh, in the thinking. And that really has led to a lot of the issues that we have where you know the environmental crisis is really a design crisis and and we need to change our understanding of cities and think about them as nature in order to get the sort of prosperous outcomes for ourselves you know in our communities and our environment that we need in the future so biourbanism involves two systems one is the biosystem and the other's the urban system talk with us about the biosystem biourbanism as a word is split um, and, and each of those are kind of the larger repositories, if you like, that the, the, the other systems sit inside. So there are five biosystems. Um, there's citizens, which is us. There's food. Of course, you know, the, the agriculture that we need to sustain ourselves. There's landscape, which is the, the terrestrial ecosystems, you know, the plants and animals that uh, sustain us uh, and sustain our, our planet. Then there's waste. Which we all, you know, understand landfill and, and pollution, um, carbon, uh, greenhouse gases are part of that, and then we also have water, uh, which is um, our oceans and our waterways. Talk to us now about the urban systems. So the urban systems are those five systems. Uh, the first one is economy. We all understand economy. That's our inputs and outputs. You know how we how we manage our economies. Energy, which is uh, really clearly in focus now as we try to transition out of um, fossil fuel energy and into renewables and provide a decarbonized set of sources. Uh, Then there's infrastructure, which includes all of our buildings, our motorways, bridges, structures like that that support our city. And mobility is our uh, our public transport networks, uh, our private vehicles and all those um, bicycles, uh, and even down to to people, uh, walkability and walking. And then the last one, technology, so uh, software and all of those things that we're using to now um, drive our, our cities along. So how do the two systems work together in cities, for example, that are on the opposite side of the world? Do the principles come together in exactly the same way or does it differ based on where you are? It's a good question. Um, cities are or can be characterised um, in the same way that nature is. So we can characterize cities by uh, their geography and their location. For example, a city may be coastal. It may be situated on a river. It may be on a mountain. Uh, so all of those are going to influence its climate. The, the systems themselves still apply to each of those different kinds of cities and their, their different uh, climatic and geographic locations. Uh, they will have different um, kinds of influences, if you like. But looking at the interrelationships of the system is really uh, a kind of important part of how we uh, better design um, holistic outcomes because it doesn't matter uh, you know, what part of the, the world the city is located. We still need to think in that, in that system's uh, way. But there are certainly some also considerable differences between cities in the developing world and mature cities in mature economies. So they all have different challenges. 
and you know clearly some of the issues that we're facing uh, globally around you know equity of wealth and you know security are different in different parts of the world so cities all have different challenges um, driven both by their geographies climates um, you know their social conditions other uh, governments geopolitical issues etc so how does the designer practically integrate those bio-urbanism systems into the design process? So the way that I write about this in the book is in Chapter 4, I talk about the concept of digital twins. So digital twins are, um, you probably would have heard a lot about the metaverse and, and the building of a digital world isn't a different place that we can live in. So digital twins are um, now a new and powerful way to replicate the physical world in a digital environment. So the power of computing and, and the speed uh, of processing has become you know, so incredible that we can now really model cities in a way that we never could. And with that, we can model um, some of the, the natural uh, or nature and environment processes that sit inside as well. And... These digital twins um, can be done at a very, very large scale. They can be done at, at a country scale, um, at a sea scale, and all the way down to a kind of a place scale. So they do provide uh, an incredible uh, platform for us to test uh, different um, scenarios, to model uh, planning outcomes, for example, changes to cities. Um, they also are powerful tools for modeling uh, climate change in extreme weather. So using some of the, the global uh, data sets, we can actually start to predict and map um, temperature uh, changes, sea level rise, all the things that um, are driving extreme weather. And, and we can look at those uh, and overlay them into the model so that we can start to you know, project and create resilience for our communities and our places. These are really incredibly powerful tools that are available and AI is really driving this um, even more quickly. So we there's no excuse now for for really not moving forward with with decarbonisation and resilient planning because um, we need to protect you know our cities, our places, and our citizens from these these events and and uh, increasingly uh, increasing frequency and severity of extreme weather events. So what sort of progressive planning has impressed you when it comes to designing for resilience in cities? I think that there's a really growing uh, global movement that's focused on delivering uh, resilience plans and resilience thinking into cities. And in many ways, cities that have been impacted by extreme weather are those that have uh, moved most quickly in developing plans. I think that um, coming or going back in time that Michael Bloomberg as, as mayor of New York um, really began the momentum in terms of an overall plan that's driven out of a local government or city department that was very progressive in developing um, resilience planning. And I think Hurricane Sandy in 2012 and the impacts of the hurricane on the city you know, really drove that um, along. And then from there, we saw the Rockefeller Center start to fund resilience offices, um, the birth of C40 cities and some of these uh, NGOs and things that are really have been um, slowly but uh, progressively developing expertise around um, resilience. 
and uh, trying to engage cities around the world in, in their planning uh, for extreme events. So as a firm, we've also been working, um, we worked in uh, Bristol in the UK, a resilience planning for the whole public estate of the city. So looking at uh, risk to their um, their real estate portfolio, if you like, of all the public lands and public assets. Uh, and again, this is something that a lot of cities are beginning to do, but they, there needs to be uh, a lot more action and progress. There's still many that, that are really not um, taking this head on. And we're seeing uh, in Australia, for example, you know, I often talk about Australia being the canary in the coal mine because we've seen in the Northern Rivers, you know, two flood events that have displaced, um, you know, a whole number of people in the centre of Lismore. And we have climate refugees um, in the Northern Rivers. There are many people that still have been unable to return to their homes um, and they're living in uh, either trailers or with friends or in places um, their homes may be still uninhabitable. So we already have these climate refugees and, and we're seeing the government then um, having to build you know, funds to buy back properties that are, that are flood impacted, which of course then knocks on to uh, the insurance um, industry. And they're really struggling uh, now to um, keep up with the you know kind of being able to insure these properties that are in areas that that uh, are heavily impacted and will be heavily impacted in the future. So for people uh, just with their their personal property um, and governments that have assets in these areas as well, it's it's a situation of increasing risk and uh, increasing problems that that come back to taxpayers really because we're funding you know these the buybacks and and, and funding uh, how we relate to or how we, how we deal with with these extreme events so these things are going to escalate um, and the the amount of uh, risk is is escalating um, I think by 2050 it was a 1.5 trillion dollar global risk um, in terms of uh, property and, and, and assets that uh, has been projected. So the numbers are, are really large and growing and it, it is signaling to us that we need to move uh, quickly on resilience planning. We can predict uh, now what's going to happen and we need to move. Are you looking for a digitalisation and net zero partner to help you achieve your goals? Join the thousands of AEC and manufacturing customers globally who have turned to VinZero to start their journey toward a net zero future. With 32 offices around the world, VinZero can connect you to the right technologies and workflow processes, so you can maintain your competitive position and increase profitability. VinZero has an industry expert to help you navigate the best pathway forward, wherever you are on your digitalisation and net zero journey. Visit VinZero.com to find out more. So what are the main challenges for cities to overcome the poor planning that leads to those types of dire results? I think the first thing um, is the recognition that they need to act. I think there's still a lot of disinformation um, and a lot of inaction, uh, inertia, if you like, around, around change because you really need to set up you know, departments inside your organization, you need to bring in expertise, capability, you need people to start to focus on 
on these um, issues. So it's hard for a lot of cities that uh, perhaps you know are underfunded already, and they're trying to deal with you know many issues um, at the same time. But uh, these, I think, this needs to be part and parcel of normal business now for um, government agencies that you know from federal through to state and local level. There, there is in Western uh, countries or, or in mature economies there's probably more um, more action. But in many cases, um, developing economies are those that are at most at risk. Large populations on coastal areas, you know, very, very close to sea level, for example. Um, so there is also a, a growing call for, you know, some of the mature economies to help um, support the people in developing nations to you know, work out how they can um, become or increase resilience in, in with very uh, large numbers of vulnerable populations. So I think that there is a role for us to play, you know, not only in our own cities, but also helping others. That's one of the things that McGregor Coxall are doing very well so far in terms of bringing together the right minds and expertise. So what have been some of your proudest moments as the Chief Design Officer? for McGregor Coxall so far? One of the things I'm, I'm most proud of is the incredible diversity of people that we have in the firm now. So we've re- we began um, with a landscape architecture focus uh, and we were working in you know, green infrastructure, blue infrastructure, helping cities retrofit um, ecologies, if you like, repair damaged um, environments increase the kind of joy of public spaces um, and places in the cities. We've even designed uh, cities. So I've worked on one city in China. I'm, I'm working on a city um, at the moment um, in the Middle East uh, and, and others. So I think what's really interesting is the, the mix of, of people that we have and how they, they work together to contribute ideas. So from environmental science to urban design, landscape architecture, now, data, um, kind of uh, analysis, um, even AI, and, and all of these things coming together to create outcomes that are much stronger than you know a single discipline could could create. And we call it interdisciplinary design. That's how we, we term it now at McGregor Cox. And we actually call ourselves biourbanists as well. So from the book, we've kind of redefined how we work. So in terms of project outcomes, I think some of the ones that have been quite exciting, in fact, going back to Parramatta Road in Sydney, which is a, was, it was a really uh, challenging problem. It's 23 kilometres of, of road that sits right in the centre of the city, and it was polluted, congested. And we won an international design competition to uh, reimagine the road. And the reason that we won was that we we worked out that to actually repair um, the road and, and recreate it as a as a great set of public places uh, and the communities around it, we need to look much wider than the road itself. So we looked at the whole region and. The answers uh, that we found came through um, the systems that uh, have then since emerged into biourbanism model. So things like public transport and walkability and in mobility, um, infrastructure, of course. So you know, dense uh, homes that are located within walking distance to transport. You know, the water system, which was repairing uh, the myriad of waterways that cross the road, and, and then 
um, you know, repairing ecologies uh, and um, and waterways. So in many ways, the thinking that went into that um, that particular project birthed this idea of systems thinking and how it could be harnessed at the wider scale to solve more local problems. So that was an interesting journey for us. And I think now um, scaling up, we did an incredible project in China that's called the Bird Airport, which was using um, recycled black water to create a place for birds in the in the global or in the, the migratory corridors where the birds fly from you know tens of thousands of kilometers uh, north south each year in the flyway we, we created an airport for the birds which is actually on an old industrial um, uh, site that had been really massively altered and uh, we created um, a set of new wetlands uh, and education facilities, research facilities for scientists that, that would sit on that site. That was very interesting. Um, and of course, scaling right up to cities. So, uh, you know, we're, we're actively in, involved in, in cities and, and regions, a very, very large scale, sort of, um, you know, mega and giga uh, scale. So they're very exciting for me now because we can apply biourbanism concepts in the model um, at really, really large scale and using our data tools in the lab to drive forward some of these concepts. So tremendously exciting for me to be increasing the size and scale of projects as my career has developed over the years. And McGregor Coxall recently won also the AILA Award for the Drying Green in Sydney, which is an innovative project that integrates that concept of blue and green infrastructure. What in particular stood out about that project? Well, the Drying Green emerged from a competition, a Green Square Town Centre that we won, which was a, a renewal of a brownfield, so it's an ex-industrial site into uh, an urban centre. And the part of that was the open space um, network that was created as part of the, the new town centre design. And the drying green was one of those open spaces uh, or parks that sat inside the, the sort of core of the, the centre. So that was 20 years ago, and the project uh, has had a very, very um, long gestation, very complex, but it's situated um, in the densest part of Sydney now, and uh, it's on an, uh, a formal wetland. So it had really, really big flooding problems because in many cities around the world, we've built over formal wetlands, and the result of that is, you know, in our big rain events, that the streets flood and you know, many of parts of the city are damaged. So relieving that flooding was a big part of the project. But also, it's not, it's not a very large uh, area. But what we want to do, well, it has the old creek that flows underneath, which is called Shays Street, and it's disappeared now. So it's, it's underground in a concrete culvert, and it's gone. So people who live in Green Square don't even realise that there was a former creek. So our idea was to really um, bring a series of constructed wetlands, which are these places where we have water plants and water flowing into the park on the surface. So there was um, a memory of, of the old wetlands um, and, and the stream. But in doing so, we made it um, what we call an ecological engine. And we drew and pumped uh, water out of this um, below-ground culvert, concrete uh, culvert and we draw it up into the park and then it runs through a series of filters and quite sophisticated technological processes to to clean the water 
before it actually um, does a three-day pass through the wetlands and that strips out the final um, pollutants and, and nutrients. And through that system, through this ecological engine, it's then delivered back into the culvert where it flows out to Alexandria Canal and out into our waterways. So we're really making a big contribution uh, to the wider city from a very small park by harnessing you know, these kind of bioorganism ideas, which are uh, blue and green infrastructure. So converting grey infrastructure, concrete, into um, you know, ecological uh, and, and waterway outcomes. And, and now we've got ducks in there. We've got incredible, you know, wildlife that's coming in and, and people are moving around the park. So it's it's really wonderful how we can use our our great thinking to repair our cities and create better better outcomes that are more resilient. Of course, it's cooler, it reduces heat as that all the trees grow. It's going to be a great place, you know, for people to come um, on hot days. Yeah, it's a great public space. So I'm very, very happy about that outcome. And you're also involved in the exemplar water-sensitive urban design and nature-based projects going on in India. What can you share with us about those? Well, we've been working with the Australian government, and this is part of what I was mentioning previously about, you know, Australia as a leader in environmental and sustainable design and being able to export some of our expertise into nations that are you know, really challenged. So we've been working with DFAT um, and the federal government there with our, our water team and our environment team in the lab to actually um, try and retrofit some of the uh, the waterways and, and water areas in uh, some of the Indian cities. And these are pilot projects. So we're working with um, local uh, Indian engineers to develop uh, the expertise and capability to roll these um, kind of pilots out in, at a larger scale. But the cities in India, of course, are, are very popular. I think it's India recently has surpassed China as having the largest population in the world. The cities are growing rapidly and uh, water and, and pollution, uh, supplying fresh potable water, um, you know, sewage systems, uh, stormwater drainage, these things are all very, very complex in, in high-density environments of Indian cities. So, yeah, it's been very interesting to uh, for us to work together with the local partners and then bring our Australian you know, expertise and learnings to, to help uh, th- those cities. And I think, you know, it's great that the Australian government is engaged in this as well. It's really, you know, great... Um, in terms of our, our outreach, I guess, to our, uh, our neighbours. So with so much opportunity already to hand, when you think future about biourbanism and the application it can have for our built environment, what is it that excites you the most? I think the really exciting part about the application of biourbanism is a radical shift in the way that our engineering, architecture, design disciplines have thought about cities. And a recognition that human beings, Homo sapiens, you know, are a species alongside many others, and that we can uh, design our cities in a much more engaging and, and potent way to future-proof them for the challenges that are coming. That's what excites me the most. It's really um, having people talk about and uh, interact 
in in a way that that we haven't done from previously, and uh, that I think is going to be informed by AI and, and by data as well, because we're starting to be able to measure, you know, good design outcomes, measure um, the importance of landscape and, and open space outcomes in cities, and be able to provide the information for our government bureaucrats and funders around the, the health benefits and the economic benefits, the avoided cost, healthy communities that are well supplied with parks and open space and, and walkable public domain are healthier. Therefore, the burden on the health system is less. So we're, we're now being able to actually translate some of the great outcomes that, that good design provides in our cities into measurable economic outcomes. And I think that's that's also a great transition that, that is occurring because it's bringing people to a realisation that the retrofit and, and great design of cities is really important and it has economic benefit, health benefit to our communities and our populations. It sure does, and definitely we're very fortunate to have McGregor Coxall defining a model for biourbanism to enable the radical shift required to redesign cities of the future. Thank you very much for sharing with us today. Thanks so much. It was great to chat. This podcast was brought to you by VinZero. VinZero helped the AEC and manufacturing industries keep pace with digital change and achieve their technological and sustainability leadership goals. Vinzero is a company that cares about creating and building a better world. Together, we are working with industry and environmental experts, providing forums and platforms through our Vinzero Think community to create conversations that matter to our future generations. We invite you to join in the conversation and participate in our Think community. Like and subscribe to Think Future to stay up to date with the latest innovations and conversations as we take AEC and manufacturing around the world closer to zero. You can download our podcast at binzero.com or from your favourite podcast platform. From Vinzero Think Future, thanks for listening.